So let me begin by just welcoming you to Labrie. So nice to see faces um, uh, and people in the room and uh, people there. So glad that you could join us here at Labrie Canada. I think that everyone's quite familiar with Labrie, but Labrie is a place where we are, um, we're convinced that Christianity is true, but we welcome people who aren't Christian to come and to engage the ideas that Christianity puts forth. Uh, we believe that they're persuasive, convincing, and most importantly, we try to live them out in practice. And so we don't just kind of speak platitudes from a um, pulpit, but we actually live life with people who watch us and see us. And uh, because we believe that Christianity is not just something that is to be believed in the mind, but can be evidenced in relationship and uh, that people can taste and see that actually God exists and God is good. But, uh, but when I'm going to speak for a little while at the end, if you have any questions or comments, uh, if you want to push against me, that's fine. I'm very comfortable with people disagreeing with me. Uh, 17 years of marriage have really helped. <laughs> and uh, everyone was laughing here. I hope you could hear that. But, uh, but yeah, so I'm okay with you disagreeing with me because I want to wrestle, and it's not that I assume that I know everything, but I want to wrestle with what we think and what we believe. And tonight we're dealing with a topic. Uh, I posed it as a question, what are we saved for? Um, I asked the question because I had very little time to come up with a snazzy title. And two, it just gets to the point. And so when Christians speak about salvation, uh, you know, sometimes people's eyes glaze over. Sometimes my eyes glaze over when people talk about being saved. I almost imagine someone being sucked up by some alien light and uh, they're disappeared into some kind of irrational land called church. Uh, but I think that there's a lot of misconceptions of what salvation entails. So we might imagine forgiveness from sins, freedom from judgment, from a holy and just God. Um, but beyond that, I don't think that there's a real sense of what we're saved for. We're often given what we're saved from, but not what we're saved for. And when people do think about being saved from their sins, saved from judgment, then they're promised to be given a heaven that actually sounds a little bit boring. Thanks, Brett, for last week mm -hmm. to help us be less bored. Mm -hmm. But some people even think of the idea of eternity as overwhelming. <clears throat> I think of, uh, I'm going to give you two instances. Welcome. Uh, I think of this Twilight Zone episode sometimes when I think about heaven, the afterlife, is that there was this pool hustler. And he was very, this is during Twilight Zone when it was black and white. Do you remember the good old days? I loved it. And uh, I remember watching this as a child. And this pool hustler, you know, smoking and drinking and having life and swindling people out of money. Well, then he died. And he wakes up in this posh hotel room. And there's this beautiful table, white felt. There's this little hotel bar, this little um, bar in the suite. And this man kind of comes to and he realizes that this is the afterlife. 
and he asks this man that is there, the, the bartender, and says, can, uh, can we play a little bit of pool? And this guy is just really jazzed that this is like a place where he can play pool, that the afterlife would include this. And so he starts playing and he wins. Well, they play again and he wins. And he plays again and he wins. And he's just like, man, I can't believe this. You know, I have this great suite. I have this bar. I have pool. But I wish there was a bit more challenge. I thought heaven would be better than that. And the man said, oh, I think you're mistaken. This isn't heaven. And I think that's really interesting to think of this idea of eternal winning. There's no challenge or diversity. It's just the same. And so this man, how he lived his life is the reward he got. But I think that people actually think heaven is like the, this eternal winning at best, if it's not a boring worship service. Uh, even there's a podcast by the liturgists. Um, who are the two people? Science Mike and Michael Gunger. Uh, this is a podcast where they speak about their deconversion and a form of reconversion. But what they talk about is their thoughts of the afterlife, of eternity. And they're a bit closer to the sense of this renewed heavens and the renewed earth. And they, they imagine what it would be like. But they said, you know, I could go to Venice Beach and see the sunset. And I could go all around the world and see all the sunsets and all the great places in the world, but it's eternity. Won't I get tired of the sunsets at Venice Beach? Won't I get bored with everything eventually? And so it seemed that heaven, even with the sense of a renewed heavens and a renewed earth, is still something that is terrifyingly overwhelming and too long. It seems it needs to end for it to be good. All good things come to an end. Uh, Even heaven. <laughs> so that's actually what I'm actually talking about. I'm just kidding. <laughs> that would be heresy. <clears throat> so, but I believe that this is a result of understanding what salvation is actually for. It cuts these ideas of the liturgist and these misbeliefs, I believe, cuts against what the Bible says. And I think it's important for us to get a grasp of for our own life here and now. But also, I think it should be helpful to pastors on what they actually proclaim. Uh, they proclaim the gospel, they proclaim these things, but then it doesn't get beyond that. What now? Is it just an application of being moral? Is it an application of something else? Like, is there not more? So I want to start in a passage. I'm going to be moving through the Bible. I'm going to start in a passage that was revolutionary for me um, several years ago. And I'm surprised to hear how many students that come through who are bored with the idea of any life to come. They're, they're definitely hesitant about anything to do with salvation whether they are Christian or not. It just seems to be a moral duty that you wait, um, you wait and do this holy huddle thing until you die, and then you get something that sounds not so appealing. But I was reading this passage in Hebrews 2, and it changed the way I saw things. It was sometimes when I'm opening the Bible, I find a passage, and I found something that I thought was unusual, and so I dug deeper. And when you dug deeper, you find that you dig very deeply. 
you know, the Bible as this hyperlinked text. That one point leads to another, leads to another, leads to another, but it doesn't just lead to the other, but it deepens. Wikipedia is a hyperlinked text, but it doesn't go deeper and deeper. <laughs> it is broad, like a big flood of knowledge. But the Bible, in its hyperlinked way, goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And so this passage in Hebrews led me deeper and deeper into understanding what salvation was actually for. And so I'm going to talk about that tonight. I'm going to be reading from uh, a translation of the Bible called the NLT, the New Living Translation. And the only reason, uh, if you're a scholar like Vincent, then you know that the New Living Translation is a is the type of Bible that is more devotional. It's not academic or scholarly. So some versions of the Bible are very academic. So it's more modern, it's more casual, but it's not so casual that it's like the message, which is almost like slang. So I'm going to read Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 10. <clears throat> Furthermore, it's not angels who will control the future world we're talking about. For in one place the scriptures say, What are mere mortals that you should think about them? Or a son of man that you should care for him? Yet you made them only a little lower than angels, crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them authority over all things. That's the end quote of this passage. One second. And so... Uh, yeah, so basically in Hebrews 2, there's this passage that is quoting from Scripture, but now it's cutting it to an end. It's saying you gave them authority over all things. And then the author continues. Now, when it says all things, it means nothing's left out. But we have not seen all things put under their authority. What we do see is Jesus, who was given a position a little lower than the angels. And because he suffered death for us, he is now crowned with glory and honor. Yes, by God's grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. God, for whom and through whom everything was made, chose to bring many children into glory. And it was only right that he should make Jesus, through his suffering, a perfect leader, fit to bring them into their salvation. Now that's a lot there. Let me expound on it a bit. So the author of Hebrews is pointing to a poem. And he's saying somehow Jesus' salvation relates to this poem. It says, he says, it's not angels who will control the future world that we're talking about. And then he starts reciting the poem. Why would he do that? Because this poem is Psalm 8. Okay, and I'm going to talk about Psalm 8 in a minute, but it, in Psalm 8 it says, And God put all things under their authority. Who is them and who is there? It's talking about human, humanity. So God is putting all things under human power, human authority. But then after he quotes this poem, the author says, 
Now, all things are given to them, nothing without exception, but we don't see all things put under their authority yet. So it means that there's still frustration, there's still something not jiving with our authority, human uh, agency and creation care. Something is ajar, there's injustice, there is harm, there is pollution, and these types of things. So we don't see all things under the subjection of human authority, but we do see Jesus, the author says. And that he dies, and, uh, and that he is uh, adopting all children into his glory, and that through Jesus would bring this perfect salvation to his people. Now, why talk about Psalm 8 and the future world in relation to human authority, in relation to what Jesus died? Now, what, to understand this better, I want us to move to Psalm 8 itself. So we can go to Psalm 8. I'm going to be jumping around a bit. So Psalm 8 is a psalm written by David, written thousands of years before Jesus lived and died. Now listen to what David writes in Psalm 8. <clears throat> Now, you have to understand that this psalm was the centerpiece of Jewish faith. It was the centerpiece of what they believed about themselves in relation to God and the world. It says, O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Your glory is higher than the heavens. You have taught children and infants to tell of your strength, silencing your enemies and all who oppose you. And when I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you set in place, what are mere mortals that you should think about them, human beings that you should care about them? Yet you made them a little lower than God and crowned them with glory and honor. You gave them charge of everything you made, putting all things under their authority, the flocks and the herds and all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the fish in the sea, and everything that swims in the ocean currents. O Lord, our Lord, your majestic name fills the earth. Now this is a Thanksgiving psalm that is praising God for placing his glorious creation into the care of humanity. But I often wonder why would God do that? I mean, if God created the whole cosmos, why in the world would he hand it over to Adam and Eve? He just made the thing. <laughs> Why hand the keys over to the priceless car? You see. Why does humanity have such a place in the universe? Yet the psalmist is amazed at the privilege that this is, at the that the status that they have, that they have this, that they're made lower than God, and yet they function a lot like God as they rule the fish of the sea and the sheep and the fields. It's amazing being human. I mean, sometimes I think of reincarnation and I look at a beetle or a fly on the wall and I'm like, oh, I'm so glad I'm not a fly. I'm so glad to be a human being. For all my faults, all my frailties, which are few, I am very thankful I'm not a fly. Yet this cuts against what many do believe about humanity, the value of humanity. So several people have come through Labrie 
and have explained to me that humanity is a virus. It's a virus that affects the world. I mean, just look at the widespread damage done to people, done to the land. And they say nature would be better off without humanity. And so I have found myself having to argue that nature is better off with humanity than worse off. Have you ever thought about is nature better off with or without humanity? It's hard not to sympathize to the views to some extent because so much damage has been done and we've done certainly more damage than plants and animals. That was my introduction to Vancouver Island. I read the Peninsula News Review and I heard an opinion piece about the blessing of the animals at St. Mary's or St. Stephen's is it? St. Stephen's. That, uh, and someone said, you know, I'm glad that someone's blessing the, um, the animals, but why do we need a human to bless the animals? Because the animals are far better than the humans. Think about that. Now, O.E. Wilson, a famous scientist and others have mentioned the idea of the virus of humanity. Yet at the same time, they argue this in order for humans to be responsible for what they have done and what they should do. But I want you to see the tension of that. I want you to see the tension, the paradox of that. Humanity has caused all these problems, yet at the same time, we humans are calling one another to be the solution to the problem of ourselves. So which is it? Are we the virus or are we the solution? How are we to decide when and which is which? Now, some people have felt the solution is just to remove ourselves, to eradicate ourselves from the planet. Now, I know that that is a popular idea, but I don't know who the first is to help on that, who's going to remove themselves, and what guarantee there is that everyone will go with you. <laughs> but I want to argue that we shouldn't get rid of humanity, not just because I want to live, but because nature, in fact, needs humans. It needs humans to flourish. When land is tended well by human agency, it flourishes. The attempts of restoring barren land attest to this. I just think about nearby, we have internationally known gardens called Bouchard Gardens. And it was Ginny Bouchard. Her, her husband was a, a rock baron, I think. And uh, this whole pit was a quarry, this quarry pit. And she looked at it and imagined a beautiful garden. Of course, they had money. They had expertise. But they used their human ingenuity to make it beautiful. And people were able to walk through that old quarry, now known as the quarry garden, and it's breathtaking. <clears throat> or consider uh, the other things that we make that are so beautiful. Consider a piano. A piano is not something that you happen to find in nature. It's a human invention. Now imagine people playing the piano. Now when people play the piano, they make gorgeous music. And just think of all the variety, the, the multiplicity of kinds of music made from the piano. Um, there was one English Labrie student, I mentioned a bit of his story. He was a uh, Australian student, came to English Labrie, but he had been studying at Oxford, getting a doctorate in piano. And I asked him, well, what kind of doctorate are you getting? What kind of music do you play? And he was hesitant because I realized he needed to explain. 
He says, I play the piano without playing the keys. He doesn't play the piano keys. What he does is he opens up, he climbs inside, or he takes it apart, he plays it with different things, and he says, I want to learn how to play the piano in every way except through the keys. That's his doctrine. <laughs> Going to contribute to society. <laughs> but I think it's amazing that his inventiveness, his ingenuity is trying to think of different ways because, I mean, imagine the, you know, the dad has the club, he's beating up some boar, and the son says he wants to make something called a piano. You know, think of how absurd that would sound. But we are so grateful someone came up with the idea of the piano. Because what is happening there is that humanity is good for creation because it brings out the potential that is already there. People didn't create music. The idea, you might even think of the perfect forms, that once a piano is made, how can you imagine a world without a piano? But in a sense, humans create these things and find out that these are realities that were possible in creation all along. So pianos were possible all along. Music was possible all along. And so humanity is a part of the blessing of bringing forth the fruit that is, remains dormant in creation until humanity brings it out. And so before we want to throw out, if we throw out humanity, we're throwing out the baby with the bathwater. Do you know that saying? <laughs> Sounds funny. You should. <laughs> We cannot get rid of humanity just because they have done great damage. Um, the author of the Psalm 8 praises the place of humanity, uh, is fully aware of the exploitation of human agency that has gone bad. Um, but it doesn't mean, that doesn't follow the psalmist believes that humanity should not exist. I mean, it's like saying when parenting when you find bad parenting, it doesn't mean that you should get rid of the institution of parenting. Just because you see bad marriages doesn't mean you should get rid of the institution of marriage. Just because you see people abuse the um, advances of technology doesn't mean we should get rid of technology. Rather, bad marriages should be replaced by good marriages. Bad technology should be replaced by good technology or good uses of technology. <clears throat> And so this is what the psalmist is doing. He's not a romantic, he's a realist, but he's praising what is praiseworthy. Humanity is given a place of privilege. Yet this privilege is also one of responsibility. It's wonderful to be top of the heap. It's wonderful to have the power of a parent, which sometimes feels helpless. But it wonder, it's a wonderful experience to be a parent, uh, but, it's, it's a, but I have a responsibility. If I try to abdicate my responsibility to try to make Samuel totally equal in all decision-making, our family would dissolve as functional. And in fact, it would be bad parenting. Uh, and so it's great that humanity has this privileged place, but it also means that there's necessary responsibility. Creation needs it to be developed. Samuel will be malnourished in his character if I don't care for him. So all that all that was, in, was within him, I should try to bring out without exploiting him, without damaging him, without uh, dominating him. But steward him in a way that brings forth his potential, brings 
a good character so that he can be a good force in the world. And so while humanity is in this place of privilege, there's also a great um, place of responsibility. And so Psalm 8 talks about this as being crowned with glory and honor. And so, so we started with Hebrews 2, we moved to Psalm 8, and now we're going to go earlier into the primordial soup of creation, okay? We're going to the creation accounts. Because that we are crowned with glory and honor points not just to our place in some hierarchy, but it points to our distinction, our status. In the creation account of Genesis, this is referred to as being made in God's image. As the New Living, um, New Living Translation, the NLT, puts it from Genesis 1, chapter 1, listen to this. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Okay, what is this image to look like? They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, and all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. I now feel terrible about the rat I killed yesterday. So God created, I should have let you take him to uh, Goldstream or Gordon Head, either way. <laughs> I'm not sure of places in Victoria. Let me continue. So God created human beings in his own image. The image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. Then God blessed them as image bearers and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. So this crowning of glory and honor is a responsibility given to us. So when we're made in God's image, it speaks of this responsibility. And so let me clarify, because sometimes people will speak of the image of God as some special trait that we have. Maybe you've heard this before. Language acquisition, rationality, the will, like some kind of characteristic, some kind of trait is what makes us the image of God, what makes us distinct from animals. But I think this idea is misplaced. Once you find that animals have some form of language acquisition, some rationality, some volition, then people start saying, well, there is no distinction between humanity and animals. It's only our pride or hubris that makes us different. <laughs> but rather, we are made in God's image means that we represent God in our care for the world as we reflect him. So image has this, I think of the image of God as in two directions. One, we reflect God, so image, like a mirror. We aren't reflecting God if we're not looking to God. But as we relate to one another, we are representing God in the world. <clears throat> so that means that we're going to use these types of things like language and rationality and will, but in how we steward the earth. And so if we relate rightly to God, then we will rightly represent God in the world. That is the function of God's image in the Bible. We do not act as gods to the world, but we function as God's agents in the world to tend what he has gifted to us. I like to say the word gifted because creation is more of a gift than a given. There's a giver, not just a static entity. So if we fail to reflect God in right relationship to him, then we fail to represent him. Uh, dominion ends up becoming domination. Stewardship, exploitation. 
<clears throat> and this is exactly what we see happens. Adam and Eve are right to want to be like God. That's not the problem. The problem is that they attempt to be God through their own power. How do they attempt this? By taking a bit of creation and using it to exalt themselves. And so humanity from the very beginning has been taking creation to exalt themselves, to hide in them, to be like God, but in their own power. So we like to be gods of the earth. But this is where sin enters and exploitation begins, domination begins. And that's why humanity functions like a virus. We do not reflect God, and therefore we treat ourselves as gods of the earth. But the strange thing is that God does not abandon his structure that he created for. He lets Adam and Eve remain who they are. He allows creation and people to continue in their role and their status. And so the psalmist in Psalm 8 can declare how glorious humanity is in spite of all this. And so you have an admixture of good dominion and domination. You have an admixture of good technology and bad technology. We have this power and we have all this around us, but we're not quite sure how it's to be ordered, how to do this. And so we still have our role and our responsibility, so we're held accountable, but we don't know how to live into it. And so we suffer and everyone suffers around us. But God doesn't want to discard the image. He wants to renew that image. He wants to rightly place us back into the relationship that God has for us and for his creation. He's actually caring not just for us when he offers salvation. He actually cares for the world in offering us salvation. But God begins this by um, choosing a people and then giving them a law. The law reveals his commands. And it's interesting, his law often has land, uh, commands around land, animals, justice issues, and then also the law includes promises, places of sacrifice for forgiveness. And so God said, for instance, you know, uh, I've had these young women who have come from legalistic backgrounds, and they become environmentalists. And they told me that they don't believe in Christianity because it doesn't believe in the environment or the care for the environment. And I always point them to Leviticus. And I said, and God says, you know, if you don't, if you don't observe the rest for the land and for the animals and for the servants, then the land will turn to bronze, the sky into iron, and the land will vomit you out. God cares a great deal for land, and that is incorporated into his law. So his law is not supposed to be just a weight. It's supposed to help us live into what God has intended for us, even in, as sinful people, to live out his good purposes for his creation. <clears throat> and if they do abide in these commands, then the land will flourish and the nations will be blessed. It's when they're wicked and they turn to themselves and they turn to, ally, um, to alliances for their own political power the people perish, vision perishes, the land suffers. So it's interesting how the law is always in relation to the land. 
Um, and thankfully, within the law, you also have the promise, the promise of someone who will come, <laughs> a king, a priest, a priestly king kind of guy who will come, and he will live according to God's law in his heart. And as a result, as the king, as the representative of all the people and of the land and of the nations, he will bring blessing. Um, he will be blessing. And I want you to listen to Psalm 72, which is talking about this person um, who is coming with God's righteousness. And so I'm just going to read the first five verses. And so this psalmist, this psalm of, by Solomon, is praying um, a prayer. The psalm is kind of a prayer and a thanksgiving. Give your love of justice to the king, O God, and righteousness to the king's son. Help him judge your people in the right way. Let the poor always be treated fairly. May the mountains yield prosperity for all, and may the hills be fruitful. Help him to defend the poor, to rescue the children of the needy, to crush the oppressors. May they fear you as long as the sun shines, as long as the moon remains in the sky, yes, forever. May the king's rule be refreshing like spring rain on freshly cut grass, like the showers that water the earth. It's amazing, this idea of that when this king comes, who upholds God's law, will actually be a blessing to the land and to the nation. And it says that his rule be from sea to sea, the whole known world um, where God's blessing will go. So what we hear is not just analogies of the future world, but promises of what the land will experience under just and righteous leadership. So the people of God waited for one who would be blessed by God's spirit to live out this perfect justice so that the nations could experience peace and abundance. And when this person came, they would usher in the new kingdom. So let's return to the passage in Hebrews 2. The future world is not for angels to rule. Rather, the psalmist said that it is for humanity. However, we do not see everything flourishing under human authority. We see bondage and damage and exploitation. But we do see Jesus. Jesus is the priest king, the priestly king, who brings renewal to the earth and begins the renewal of good human authority to the world. So what that means is that Jesus suffered, is crowned with glory and honor, just as we are being made in God's image. But Jesus is able to be the perfect image of God in God's character. And by that, is able to usher in this perfect kingdom of bringing flourishing to creation, fruitfulness to creation, and to enable us to participate in Christ to bring about that good creation. <clears throat> now, it's interesting. Uh, let's see. Sorry, I, got, I lost my place. So it's not surprising when Paul speaks of when you are in Christ, you are a new creation. It's unusual language. The Spirit makes us a new creation. But that's exactly what we're for, uh, made for. It's not just to be freed from sin, but it's the pointing at renewal in our hearts so that we might be a renewal to the things around us. That we might start tending to the fruitfulness of God's creation, to bring it out rather than dominate the earth for its resources, to dominate people for their, and use them for their resources, but to actually bring dominion, to steward it in such a way that it brings out the potential and the good character of what God has created. 
That is how God functions. And that is, in fact, what God has done in Jesus. So before I get ahead of myself, I'm going to draw our attention to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, Orthodox Christianity has always affirmed the physical resurrection of Jesus. Why? I'm not asking her. <laughs> Rhetorically, why? Why would Jesus, why is it so important to think about the physical resurrection of Jesus? I mean, some think that Jesus showed himself as physical just to show, prove that he was alive again. But then that's kind of the end of it. Uh, it's evidence, but nothing more. However, something greater is at work. The physicality of Jesus' resurrection is vitally important. What it does is it reaffirms God saying it is very good. When God looked at creation, he said it is very good. Now with sin and damage and exploitation, can he still say it's very good? And so when Jesus rises again from the dead with flesh on his body, he's eating. God is reaffirming the goodness of creation and the goodness that he has for humanity in relation to creation. Now, do you remember the first person who sees Jesus? Mary Magdalene? Now, it's curious. She thought she saw a gardener before she saw Jesus. Now, that's, that's probably not just a humorous anecdote that everyone's just like, oh, Mary Magdalene seeing things again. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, funny Mary. You know, she saw a gardener when it was actually Jesus. You know, no, that was, that's not the point that the Bible is making. It's making a very important point to say that, uh, that Jesus' resurrection points, not just that he has risen again, but that we are reasserted in the garden, that we are reasserted to tend the garden. And having a resurrected body is all a part of that. Now, so there's continuity. There's continuity between what God made in the first place, a body, there's continuity there, but there's also continuity of what God created or what God intended at creation in redemption is also shown in the final book of the Bible, Revelation. So I mentioned this a bit last week uh, when Brett was speaking. In the final chapters, we hear that the splendor of the kings and the splendor of the nations will be brought into heaven. That's strange. The great things and the great acts of humanity will be brought into heaven. The new Jerusalem, heaven that has come down to earth. At times we imagine that creation was simply a gigantic backdrop, kind of like a scene and scenery for this human drama to be discarded at the end of the play. But rather creation is vital to our salvation. We see that humanity has done... um, what humanity will do in its dominion will be brought into the new Jerusalem. God will purify and bless and establish the work of our hands. So imagine someone creating a wheel, bring it in. Imagine a piano, bring it in. Imagine great ideas or great cultures. I love French culture, Korean culture, Canadian culture, and American culture. You know, we love it. And I'm so glad that these types of cultural activity can be brought into the new kingdom of God, into the new Jerusalem. Ideas, 
the diversity of ideas, that the, that the ideas through philosophy and all that we've thought. It won't just be discarded, it'll be understanding new things in new ways. Now, I don't see that the New Jerusalem will be homogenous, <laughs> and so therefore I don't see it as boring. I think it will be very diverse, very dynamic. While it is unified, I, I think of the Pentecost. At Pentecost, the Spirit came down upon the people in their fire, and then people spoke. And when they spoke, everyone, even though they spoke in different languages, everyone understood. There's a sense of unity and a sense of diversity. And so I imagine that the new heavens and the new earth will be diverse, culturally diverse, that there will be growth, that there will be, I can, I can learn Korean and I have eternity, okay? I'm going to get it, I'm going to nail it, okay? But maybe other languages, Tolkien can create a whole bunch of new languages. Just all these things that we can develop, um, I believe, are a part of what we are saved for. So at Labrie, we encourage the exploration, the discussion of the development of all areas of life. Paul says that whether we eat or drink, we're able to glorify God in those things. This means that uh, sometimes people think of salvation when they don't understand this. They think of work as a platform to evangelize. Um, do you remember the Big Kahuna? It was a film in the late 80s, early 90s. And it had to do with uh, these three trade salesmen. They're, tra they're selling industrial lubricants. And there's this guy coming to the hotel. And he's the guy that owns, he's a CEO of some company. And they need to pitch this in order for their uh, business to do really well. And they'll make lots of money. Well, Bob is a Baptist. And he ends up meeting the big kahuna, the big sell, the big catch. And ends up talking to him, not about the product, but about faith in Jesus. And so uh, the two other salesmen are in despair that this guy uses his job not to sell the product when they needed the money, but to witness about Jesus. Now, that movie begs discussion. But my point is that too many times people will look at their work as an accountant, as a plumber, as a dentist, to use it as a platform to witness about Jesus rather than thinking that their job should be the job that they do. But God has saved us to do dental work well. That is a part of our glorifying God and bringing witness to him. It's not just trying to use it as a platform to some other thing. That's mercenary. When you're trying to use something to get some other ends, that's mercenary. God has saved us in order to do plumbing well. He has saved us to do accounting well. The gospel is announced in how we do the numbers, in how we take care of our homes, in how we take care of ourselves. And so in Christ, we are to be excellent as acts of spirituality. Because this is what brings glory to God, and this is what he saved us for. Good plumbing is just as spiritual as prayer. Cooking is just as spiritual as preaching. <clears throat> my cooking is better than my preaching, in fact. <laughs> but all these are needed aspects of what it means to be truly human. I mean, taking hair from bunnies and making them into wonderful products. That's good dominion there, Hannah. So 
Okay, so I should finish there, but if I were to finish right now, which might be great, um, and I could end with a flourish about this big finish of how we need to, Christians need to go out and do all things well for Christ in whatever they do, and that's what Christian, that's what Labrie often promotes. But if I end here, it can lead to what is called triumphalism. Triumphalism. Triumphalism is this idea that we can usher in the kingdom of God through our powers, that God has saved us to achieve the kingdom of God for him. And this is a mistake that many, many have had or made. The Catholic Church confuses itself as the kingdom of God. As a result, the Catholic Church assumed an earthly authority over government, governments at various times and places. Um, I have found that this is one of the leading reasons why many Canadians have given up a belief in God because of the control the Catholic Church had over politics, policies, and over education. You see liberation theologies as tempted to see history through the lens of Marxism and that these justify revolt and at times violent means to achieve um, justice for the marginalized by any means necessary. And that has been in the garbs of religion as well. The social gospel of the early 20th century were, was also triumphalistic, though a little bit nicer, a nicer version. Uh, the social uh, gospel attempted to usher in God's kingdom through programs, through taking care of the poor, the disenfranchised, soup kitchens and the like. But they felt that if they created enough soup kitchens and enough programs, then God's kingdom would come that he would force their hands and that the kingdom of God would come through them. And so a lot of people burnt out. That it was so much effort. Dutch Calvinists like Abraham Kuyper, someone who I do like, um, also had a tendency to want to see renewal in all areas of life, arts, politics, economics, education, and more in the name of Christ. But it did so, well, let me pause on that. And we see the triumphalism also at work in a certain strand of American evangelicalism today to make America a light to the nations through political means. Okay, so this is all the confusion about the relationship of salvation. Who are we in relation to the kingdom of God? What are we as a called church to have human authority in the world, but also waiting for God's kingdom to come? Because we need to remember that when we seek these efforts so much that we can forget that God is the one to lead us. We have to remember that New Jerusalem comes down. We're so tempted to use religion to build the Tower of Babel up. Even with the best of intentions, it's very damaging. Francis Schaeffer, as I often say, who started Labrie with his wife Edith, that the most dangerous force in the world is the church trying to um, seek the kingdom of God through the power of the flesh rather than the power of the spirit. And in fact, I see churches sometimes hedging on this, that they, that they say that they're doing kingdom work. We even have books in this library that they think that they're establishing the kingdom of God uh, through prayers and through soup kitchens. Now, I'm not against prayer. I'm not against soup kitchens. But I think it's very dangerous to, to not have this nuance that what we are doing is establishing the kingdom of God. 
Rather, we are called to pray for God's kingdom to come. Um, and that it will ultimately come in fulfillment in fullness when Jesus returns. And that kingdom doesn't just come in the flow of history, nice and calm, but comes as a major interruption. It comes as a renewal, but also as a judgment. As much as there is continuity between the body and human authority, there is also a discontinuity. Peter says the church will be the first judged. So the church cannot be mistaken as the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God will judge the church. <clears throat> so all human activity that will enter into the New Jerusalem, which I mentioned earlier, will go through a refining fire, a purification like gold. Gold is not bad, but it needs to be purified. So maybe a super wheel. <laughs> uh, you know, in Isaiah... A super wheel. Like I mentioned that a wheel will come into the New Jerusalem. You must have a super wheel. Forget it. It's wasted. Pearls to swine. I'm kidding. Uh, I do it. You know, you think about uh, this purification. You think of Isaiah. He says that the spears will be turned into pruning hooks. That's the type of refining that's going to happen. The weapons that we choose to use for war, God says, no, I'm going to use that for gardening. So we, don't, uh, we do not see all things put under human authority. What Jesus has initiated in his work in us has not reached completion, and it won't until he comes in his glory. And so until then, we groan. Creation groans. <clears throat> And so this is, this is where um, I'm leading us toward a conclusion. But in Romans 8, so thinking about this passage in relation to all that I've said, Paul writes, all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children and glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory, for we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies he promised us. So it's interesting that Paul is talking about this longing for God's salvation. What does that salvation look like? That all things will be subjected under human authority, but through the renewal of God's spirit, through the renewal of Jesus himself, in whom all things hold together. And so he's saying, Paul's saying, we groan, but creation groans. And later on, he's going to say the spirit groans. And so the Spirit and we and creation are all groaning for the kingdom of God to come. And so we pray, as we exert ourselves, um, we groan for God to bring complete what he has started. So what does it mean to be saved? In conclusion, I think the Bible paints a very different picture than what is often spoken of in churches and from pastors. Salvation is not simply a picture of people huddling away in a holy group, in churches, awaiting a heaven that is, frankly, uninspiring. 
Rather, the Bible speaks of a future reality and our part in it to open up our imagination. And it's supposed to be speaking of what that renewal means for us now. And so, Brett, as you spoke of the life to come, it's about what we, we begin to participate in that future glory now in Christ. We are saved to be and do what Adam and Eve could not be, not because we are able to do it in our own power or wisdom, but because Jesus has secured this reality in himself. We are to seek this renewal through the work of the Spirit. <clears throat> um, because it's the Spirit that brings renewal to our hearts, um, it brings renewal to our relationship with God, renewal to our relationship with one another, uh, and our relationships to the land and to our cultural activity. So this is what salvation is for. Okay, so that's where I end, and uh, this is a time where we're going to open up for discussion, but if there's anyone who has a question to start us off, that's great, but if you have a question on Zoom, just unmute yourself. But if you have a question here or a comment or even a reflection of what you experienced or have thought of salvation, I would love to hear it. If anyone has a comment or a question, uh, then, um, then this is the time for it. But I also said, have you ever, like, what is your experience? I'll ask you. Like, when someone says, do you want to be saved, mm -hmm. what does that mean to you? What mm -hmm. picture have you, yeah, what picture comes into your mind if someone says, do you want to be saved? It's easy. It's easy. Okay. Simple. It's simple. Yeah. That's what you hear. It's simple. No, I just, I know what I want. I know oh. what I want for myself. Oh, okay. So when someone says, do you want to be saved, you think about what you want for yourself. Yeah. And what is that? A clear conscious peaceful conscious subconscious a peaceful subconscious yeah. or conscience yeah. yeah that's great yeah not putting yourself down and you can tell that when someone puts themselves down put others down mm -hmm. when they have an uneasy conscience they can do great damage to themselves and to others they are people of unrest and and so as the spirit gives us renewal in us it brings renewal to others it flows out like water um, it's out of abundance but no that's helpful thank you for answering that question um if someone asked you what does it mean to be saved what's the image you have of salvation or saved um all things become new all things become new mm -hmm. yeah. peace joy Peace, love, and joy. Yeah, that's good. In fact, I, I trouble with the word saved. Because when I hear the word saved, I think that it's usually sucking people. There's Richard Thompson was a famous British folk guitarist and writer. And he said, um, I once had a friend. My friend found a friend in Jesus, and I have no friend no more. <laughs> I had a friend. Um, and my friend found a friend in Jesus, and now I have no friend no more. <laughs> because you think of once someone's saved, then they're just taken away from everything. It seems like they're taking away from meaningful relationships. Like, oh, I used to be your friend, and now I can't be. And so it almost seems to be taken away from every meaningful action in the world. 
That's how I often think of salvation, mm -hmm. is to be taken away from cultural activity, not toward it. Right, which is kind of, yeah, there is kind of that, isn't there? That we, yeah, we can separate ourselves. Because there is some teaching about separating ourselves from the world. Yes. Do not conform to the world, but be transformed. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Thank you. Do not be conformed to the patterns of this world. Uh, and so, but what Paul's talking there in Romans 12 is that we, we need the renewal of the mind. Mm -hmm. And so it's not the abandonment of the mind or abandonment. And so, yes, the, the, the New Testament talks about the world in two different ways. The world that is in rebellion and the world that God made and that Jesus loves. Mm -hmm. And, uh, but yeah, that's, yes, there is supposed to be a separation to be set apart is to be holy. But why were the Jews set apart as holy? So that they could be a light to the nations. Mm -hmm. Not just like a city on the hill, but Jesus says, don't put your light under a bushel. Make sure that you're salt and light in the world. Mm -hmm. The light exposes and the salt brings seasoning. You know, and it brings preservation. And so we need, but yeah, that's, that's. So there is a separation, but in order that yeah. we bring goodness and light and um, Josh, I see that you're unmuted. Hey, Al. Yeah, I unmuted myself. Um, I'm, I'm up here in, in Fort St. John trying to scrub off all of those Latin P's as I try and save myself from poverty. Um, <laughs> the, uh, uh, um, so my understanding is um, popular evangelical eschatology comes a la Kirk Cameron and and Maybe left behind uh, sorts of things where uh, the predominant um, eschatology of 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 that American Christianity is is that one of removal um, through a mechanism commonly known as the rapture. Um, I think it's what uh, what would you have to say about that particular doctrine, its effects, what you think about it. Great, thank you. So uh, the question is, is the great theologian, which is in quotes, uh, Kirk Cameron, the actor, uh, was, in the, when his, was in a film series called Left Behind, which Ta Tim LaHaye wrote. And it's an idea of this, uh, which is a very popular form that you hear elsewhere of kind of, the rapture and so salvation is in a sense that those who steadfastly stay true to god will be taken up to this upper heaven and the world below burns uh, and it doesn't really speak much of a future world uh, it's just so the story often ends raptured and is raptured up now this is a heavy influence from greek thought uh, Greek introduction. Now, uh, Christianity is very unique in that it borrows from cultural elements. It borrowed from uh, Hebrew cultures, Babylonian culture, Assyrian culture, Egyptian culture, and it borrowed from Greek culture because the gospel is able to be articulated through it. The problem is, is that often when people are reading the New Testament, 
and these New Testament writers are writing in relation to a Greek mindset, that they do not see that, uh, one, that the Bible itself is arguing for creation, or it's not, it's not arguing, the New Testament is not arguing for creation or a creational ethic. It's arguing from a creational ethic in the Old Testament. And so what happens there is people stay, you know, we have these Bibles from the Gideons and all it has are the Psalms and the gospel accounts and the letter, the New Testament. But a lot of the understanding of what salvation comes from is actually from the Hebrew. And, and so the New Testament is an explication of what Jesus has accomplished with what was promised in the old. But a lot of new churches or a lot of churches that are just kind of like the New Testament kind of church are so influenced by these Greek, uh, this, this Greek thought that's at work in the conversation in the New Testament. But um, you understand what I'm saying. But what they do is that they end up taking these categories of uh, what is up is better than what is down. Now, um, now Paul will speak, speak about speaking of lofty, thinking of loftier things. Uh, you have this thought of being taken up into the air to meet the Lord or uh, up to meet the Lord in the air. Uh, but most of, um, and I can explain each of those, but what you have is a disregard of other aspects like the, the creation groaning or the heaven coming down to the earth. Um, or even the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, the word new is, is, there's two Greek words for new. There's uh, neos, which means brand new. And then there's, uh, I can't remember the Greek word for the second one, but it means renewed. And the one that's speaking of the new heavens and the new earth is actually the Greek word that means renewed. And so, um, so yeah, I think that this kind of rapture mentality is using a dualistic concepts that are not biblical and we have lived into that uh, i think tim lahaye uses that uh, a lot of uh, modern american evangelicalism lives into that so do you want to say anything more No. Okay. Are you saying the rapture is not true? Am I saying the rapture is not true is the question that's asked. What do you mean? Uh, do I, do I say that the rapture is not true? Do I believe that the rapture is not something that will happen? What do you mean by rapture? What did you mean by rapture? <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I, no longer believe rapture. We can already be raptured every day. You know, this said, come up higher. I am the door, mm -hmm. right? So he is the door. So we really can go through the door. Even right now, as I sit here, mm -hmm. I can have that experience of him. We don't have to be looking forward to a rapture when we can have it right now. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so thank you. So uh, the comment is, do I believe in the rapture? What is that? Uh, and it's D Darlene. I'm going to say Darnella, but it was like, okay, Darlene. Okay, I was close. 
um, Darlene was saying that uh, we can experience that rapture here and now, that, that Christ is the door that we can walk through even now. So the rapture is not some future reality that we have to look forward to, but something that we can experience with God in this present moment. Is that right? Um, so the idea of the rapture in the Bible or um, in popular culture often means that when someone is driving the car, it says, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. I don't believe in that. Um, I don't believe that people will be sucked up into the air while everyone else is in confusion on the earth. That's what I do not believe. Now, you can think about when Jesus speaks about um, uh, kind of apocalyptic things happening. Where's the kingdom of God? Don't say it's here. Don't say it's there. The Son of Man will come like a lightning in the thief of the night. Like a thief in the night. Or like lightning. There will be two working at a millstone. One will be taken, and the other one will remain. There will be two in bed. One will be taken, the other one will remain. What a lot of people don't know is that scholars are 50-50 on which ones are saved, the one taken or the ones who remain. And so it's interesting because, uh, but you can, have this, you can have this idea of those taken. But is Jesus speaking of a physical reality at that time? Perhaps. Now, what we do have is that all will be raised before the judgment throne of God. That, and it speaks of all people being raised from the graves. All the dead will be raised and, and meet God before his throne. Where will that be? Okay, I mean, okay, is it up? Is it like, okay, are we going to go up and then we're going to come back down to the earth where God's rule will be forever and ever? Possibly. Like, but um, how God will judge and where that will take place, I'm not going to guess. If someone wants to say it's up in the air, okay. But what we don't have uh, is this sense where the Bible speaks of, um, of this sense that all the good people will be taken up and the bad people will stay to suffer for some period of time. I guess they will meet him in the air. In Thessalonians, it says that we will meet him in the air. Now, uh, and I didn't say, I said I could explain that, but in that passage, it talks about how that is that is an idiom that people used in the Greek to refer to saying, hey, I'll meet you up the road, okay? Um, and so it's about meeting someone uh, as they're coming this way and you're coming that way and you will meet them, okay? So it can, it's, it's just, it's really referring to not of, of not geographical. So then that would be an issue with the translators. That they're leading us astray. Well, yeah, I mean, if we get, and so she said, the translations lead us astray. If they're not um, leading the idiots, Brett. Yeah, yes, um, Tom Reich is really good on this. He's got a whole paper on uh, farewell uh, to the rapture. But the idea is, is that a Roman general would be coming home from being victorious. You would go out to meet him outside the city and welcome him in. You'd be part of the procession. Yes. So this is welcoming Jesus back to earth. It's a That's totally right. different thing. And, and, and I don't know, 
the passage about being you know, one being taken, one being left, that's in the context of Noah. And the people who were taken were the people who were who were like taken by the flood. <laughs> you know? But I was uh, I think actually that the rapture is one of the greatest heresies of North American Christianity because it is the complete opposite of the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, Christians are saying, we believed in God and now things are going wrong. Why are we suffering? Yes. And the book of Revelation says it's through your suffering, the world is going to be saved. People are going to see your suffering and they will come to Christ. Whereas the rapture says, you avoid suffering, yeah. Everybody else suffers. Yeah. And, that's and, and that's not the pattern that Jesus gave us. She's a post Yeah. And so people become Christians in North America, and then they have problems, and they think, oh, this is not what I signed up for. I, I signed up for the problem-free life. Whereas Jesus says, come to me, take up your cross. So the whole of Revelation, rather than escaping suffering, is an invitation to suffering along with Jesus and that's why when the Roman population, you know, the Christians in Rome suffered in, in the Colosseum, Rome became Christian. Yes. Because they suffered. Mm. So, so, so that's what mm. we in North America need to be reminded of, that Christians suffer. And it's mm. partly our suffering that is a witness to others and brings others to Christ. But not suffering for our own sin. No. Not, not suffering because of our own sin, but suffering for doing what is right. doing what is right. right. Yeah. And I could be wrong on this, but I'm pretty sure that all this was introduced by Schofield. And Schofield did a translation of the Bible with a commentary on Revelation. And a lot of people take his interpretation of Revelation as the Bible because it's in the Bible. Yeah. Uh, but my readings of the ancients, never a discussion of this. It was, um, it didn't try to parse the sequence of events. Now, there were emotions like, okay, when is God's kingdom coming? They look at Daniel, is the, the disciples, is the kingdom of God yet? So there's always been a sense of when is the kingdom coming, but not necessarily a sense of post pre trib That's very modern. And the rapture plays into that as well. Uh, this talk of avoiding suffering is yeah. really interesting. And it also talks, I think it goes right to the theology of like what it, the mechanism so to speak, of how people are saved. So like what I grew up with was the idea that um, we're very sinful and worthy of going to hell, and then Jesus paid for our sins, which is it's a common theme in the Bible, but it's not the only way to look at salvation. Mm -hmm. And um, the, this passage further on, beyond, just beyond what you spoke about tonight. Hebrews 2. Yeah, in yes. Hebrews 2, talks exactly about like a whole different idea of what that mechanism of like the way Jesus saved people is, mm. which which involves people identifying, in a sense, identifying with Christ, and he um, makes a way and, you know, defeats the devil and mm. like um, overcomes sin. But it's, it's like, a, it's a whole different thing rather than like, very much of like a evangelical culture that's common, the idea of like, Jesus paid for the sins, all you have to do is pray, you know, mm -hmm. confess and get your free ticket to heaven, and then like, right. you're saved. Jesus paid for everything, and now you're like, you're free. Like, there's, 
It's like you don't do anything like it's like free for what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I think that discontinuity in the theology of being saved, like the free ticket, the free ticket kind of concept of salvation is also like part and parcel with this also with the the discontinuity of like escaping suffering through the rapture versus the idea of the kingdom of God being within us. And um, in sense, working, laboring towards incarnating that on Earth, right. so to speak, over time as a process. You know, like so. One is, uh, like you said, dualism. It's like this separation between um, being a human being and and being like a disembodied spirit that escapes yes. away from everything. Right. So. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's on multiple levels. It's really interesting concepts. One second, one second. Okay. I'm gonna let Greg speak because Greg has patiently been waiting there, mm -hmm. unmuted and yet silent as a mouse. So please speak, Greg. Yeah, I guess the, I, I've always been on, well, for a long time, I've been uncomfortable with the whole idea of being saved from the point of view is that I think so much has been interpreted in such a way that it actually turns Christi Christianity 180 degrees from what is intended. And I think it's one of the reasons that so many people are turned off the Christian faith, because I think it's, you know, like you hold up about the about the rapture and stuff that uh, Josh talked about and whatnot. It's about, uh, you know, it seems to be thought of sort of as what's going to happen to me in the next life. And I better do the right thing or believe the right thing, say the right thing, go to the right church or whatever to get me on the right side of the equation when it comes to the next life. When really we should be thinking more like what you talked about, where we talked about we're being saved for a purpose. We've been, we're saved to serve God's creation through reflecting God's love uh, into the world. Uh, and I think that's, I think it's done tremendous damage to the Christian church. Because it has, it's made it's made a, a, a belief that's focused on the self instead of um, on the on the other, if you like, on our neighbor, on on, on God's uh, creation, and so on and so forth. That's a really great point. Yeah, we have been way too individualistic in our own thoughts on faith, and when we think about salvation in Jesus, it often has been very about a personal choice. And now. The Christian church did bring, because uh, there was a huge sense of, um, of corporateness, of, of national identity. And so personal identity was negligent or negligible in ancient cultures. And mm -hmm. so uh, this guy named Larry Seidentop, the, um, the invention of the individual, he actually points to the origins of Western liberalism as the beginning um, of the, as the early Christian church. And he sees Paul as an important part of that as saying that, you know, we're not just the identity of our nation. We're not just the identity of me as a, as um, under my husband, but I actually have my own identity before God. And so there is a sense of some healthiness about this individualism. Uh, and so that's where we get a sense of each person has their dignity and their own accountability Yet, at the same time, we have become hyper-individualistic in our modern society, where we, especially in the West, not in the East, but in the West, uh, in the West, we, the first thing that we think is I, the first thought in the East is we. 
And so, uh, so this hyper-individualism in the West, um, which gives us our freedoms and our luxuries and things, but also distances us from our corporate responsibility and our communal belonging, which is what is given to us in Jesus. So when people are reading the New Testament, it says you, you, you. We read it as me, 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 but actually it means y'all, 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 right? So thank you. American background showing up again. <laughs> You're welcome. Y'all's <laughs> going to be in heaven, guaranteed. <laughs> Um, you were mentioning all creation groaning. Yes, um, all creation So that's a very good question. So when, when Paul is talking about creation, uh, uh, groaning, he's talking about all things that God has made. Our experience, trees, rocks, everything. Animals. You know, Jesus interestingly says, even the rocks would cry out yes. if I muted the children. And in the Psalms, uh, it says, Praise him, moon, praise him, sun, praise him, stars. And so it's asking the whole of creation mm -hmm. to praise God. Now, are we to say that there is some kind of consciousness, consciousness to it? I don't know. I'm not a pan consciousness kind of person, but uh, where, but possibly, but what it means is that God knows every hair, every sparrow, that there is nothing outside of his care and his knowledge and, and, and his personal knowing. And the sun, I believe, praises God by, by going its course. The frog glorifies God by its hopping. And, and so, but creation is being exploited. So, so there are, you know, I would say feedlots in the U.S. I think it's not wrong to eat meat, but I think that the way that we do feedlots in the States and in Canada are that creation is groaning, that the land is being laid waste and that uh, the cows are not treated well and maybe they live very short time. And I'm not talking about maybe it's the cries of the goat that reaches God's ears, maybe. But I think that more, more specifically what Paul's talking about is that creation is not being what, it's, what God intended it to be. And humanity is a huge part of that problem. Um, it's not the only problem. I do believe in an unseen realm. But, uh, but, we, but we cause a lot of problems. And so... Um, it also says further along that all creation is growing for the revealing of the sons of God. Yes. So there's another aspect to that, right? Mm -hmm. In order for creation to stop growing, it's, it's waiting for us. To come yes, creation is groaning, waiting for our liberation. Are, yeah. As the sons of God, right? Absolutely. So, that's it. That's, that's my whole key point in this talk, is, is that... Um, is that creation groans for our liberation. And, he, and Paul says, just as we groan for our liberation from sin and sickness, uh, and creation groans from death and decay, and it's been subjected by God's curse that we brought upon the earth, and that curse has come upon the earth because of us and because the sin within us is bringing frustration to the earth. Um, and yet, when we are fully redeemed, freed from sin and sickness, 
and creation can be like, oh, finally, no longer a bad master. Think of kids who are experiencing terrible parenting. Think of a house. And so when I was looking for housing uh, for Labrie on the peninsula, I saw 60 houses. And I tell you, I saw a lot of spiritual darkness in the houses by how people lived. It's not just like, you know, ooh, I get a haunty kind of feeling. I'm like, there's something not good here. This, this house is experiencing futility and frustration. That this house was built, but it's not being lived into as it should be. And so the very boards aren't being lived into, if you see what I mean. And so I think that that is a microcosm or analogy of how we should think of creation. Uh, sorry, Julia wants to follow up. Uh, yeah, on that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really felt that in, I felt COVID very helpful for this. Like, I felt like it was. That COVID was helpful. This yeah. groaning uh, creation that people were just under an illusion. I see. There. So COVID disillusioned us that everything was all right. Yeah, so I have found it helpful to be more in touch with the groaning of creation. And when Eleanor came for her concert, it was all very kind of mournful, Celtic, you know, sad. My, my the man I loved has died. But it was like we were all sitting, you know, with these masks and the songs were kind of haunting. Um, yeah. Yeah, so Julia is just saying that COVID seems to have emphasized or highlighted in her and the world around us to see that the world isn't as it should be. And that we had a concert recently of this musician singing about this uh, her husband or my lover who has died. And we're all sitting around listening to this mournful song as we wear masks. And it just, it just seemed to embody what we are currently expressing or experiencing. And yeah, yeah. And one, uh, there's a guy that works in Peru who is sometimes on these calls, who does environmental crises stuff in Peru, working with the government there, said that he sees COVID as not... Um, uh, that COVID is a byproduct of our environmental disaster. That it's not something that's just a happenstance, but that it is part and parcel of how we treat the land. That we would try to develop diseases to be stronger. <laughs> um, uh, shows you the power, but also the abuse. Uh, yes, Pam. You mentioned the fight, you called the man as being the virus. The humanity is the virus. When you were saying that, it's actually sin and the fallen nature of man that is yeah. the virus, right? That's right. And the climate, the climate change is a, is a result of that. The earth is groaning right? yes. under the weight of sin. Absolutely. Yeah, and so when I said humanity is the virus, uh, you know, I was I was not really believing that humanity is the virus. Yeah. yeah. But I'm saying that people make the argument, and, and so I kind of played with that to say, well, the virus lives within us but also the greatness and the solution is in us. And, but it, we need God to renew our hearts so that we can bring that renewal. Uh, yes, Liz. Um, I just, just, yeah, following up with the comment about like, our destruction of nature and things like that. I've been studying about the Black Death, uh -huh. 
Liz has been studying about Black Death. It's really light reading. <laughs> Um, Which she's going to be lecturing on in two weeks. She's going to be lecturing on. But one interesting thing is just uh, the, this book that I'm reading was saying that it was that society was kind of primed for it to just wipe people out. And one of the things was that that it was the peasants all had these small plots of land and they had to continually farm them and they did, and they just used the same crops over and over. So the land was totally depleted and they weren't like getting anything from it. So they were starving, basically. Um, so, it, so it was interesting to hear you talk about like uh, the laws in Leviticus, um, because they weren't, you know, it was injustice that meant they only had these these plots of land and everything, small plots of land. But because of that, the land was being mistreated, and then they were dying. And then because they were already malnourished, then like the plague just swept through and, and all this destruction. Um, so it's interesting how the how land kind of, you know, sometimes rises up in the end, but it's, it's like- And vomits us out. Yeah, it's like a cycle of like, you know, injustice. people being invested to each other, that affecting the land, and then that affecting more people, and like, it's all tied together. So the need the flourishing of the land too, for ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, it's Yeah, that's so good. So Liz was just talking about in the Black Death that these peasants were tending over their small plots of land over and over again and depleted the land so much so that uh, it created depleted land, but also brought about this sickness and, uh, and how, how true that is to what the Bible was saying in terms of human relationship to the land. And we cannot understand salvation. Uh, oops, sorry. We cannot understand salvation apart from land. We cannot understand salvation in the Bible apart from land. We cannot understand the law from the land. We cannot understand God's promises from the land. We cannot understand anything about ourselves apart from the land. Because we are from the land. Uh, God made us from the dirt. Or when we disintegrate into the dirt, like we are, we, what? <laughs> Women you're float. Made out of dirt, made out of dirt. <laughs> oh yeah, you're made of cockle shells and sugar bells or something like that. <laughs> oh right. All all flesh will return to dust. Dust dust is from where you came, from whence you came. Would you go? <laughs> Come on, dust to dust, okay? <laughs> Deal with it. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I'm not physically from the dirt, but I return to the dirt. But in a sense, I'm made up of dirt, as it were. Okay? And uh, through God's miraculous creation. By the way, next week, just so you know, we're speaking, a uh, scientist from Australia was going to be speaking on science in the Bible particularly in Genesis 1 through 3. Come to that if you want more interesting thoughts. But, uh, yes, did you want to follow up what you were just saying or something new? Um, follow up on Carl. Carl, yes, okay. Okay, so I think I understand what you were saying, but, um, like, the way I would see, or I have seen salvation is that Christ did die for my sin, 
and I have to accept him. And then when I accept him, um, I am a new creation. But then it's like sanctification. I'm instant. It's instant and progressive. Yes. So when I became a Christian at age 12, I felt born again. I didn't know what born again was, but I experienced a lightness of a joy that I've never felt before. So there was an experience of that was wonderful, but I had I was nowhere near being sanctified in the reality of it. But then from there on, it was a gradual growth. And I do know that in the church, we kind of, I think that's what you're saying, is that we kind of have, are taught that once you're saved and you arrive, you've got your ticket and uh, Some people free. treat it. I was kind of exaggerating a little. Okay. But some, <laughs> some people are that good. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. I'm yeah. saying. And okay. So it was just, I was sort of saying it that way to make a contrast between two different concepts mm -hmm. of salvation, right? So, right. Okay. Um, yeah. I totally we're appreciate not, where you're coming from. So we're not people have different experiences. We're not so, saved from just what we're saved to. Right. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people think mm -hmm. that, yeah, because Carl, um, Abigail was just clarifying and saying that uh, salvation is not just a one-time moment, but uh, it's a one-time moment, but that proceeds to be a formation in us, a process. Mm -hmm. And that that's true that we are you know i think it was you know a lot of people have asked the question when i'm saved why am i not saved completely right away why am i not glorified and why would god start this process and god starts the process in us and i believe that as we struggle through sin and suffering that we are being sanctified to maturity to glorification but i also believe that we will continue to mature in heaven I don't think that we'll just know everything. I don't think that we'll just be kind of just sitting there, you know, full pleasure mode all the time. I think that it's going to be a sense of, uh, of development, of maturity, even of challenge, but there will be a joy. It wasn't that gardening was a part of sin. It was that there was toil to gardening. And so no longer will we have to toil as we garden. And so there's something joyful about having to dig and watch something grow rather than imagine it and it happens. I asked my kids, uh, if you could just think anything into existence and that it would have, no, uh, your superpower would, whatever you thought would come into existence, but you couldn't control it. It would just keep coming. Would you want that superpower? And so they started imagining the power of thinking Legos and, and then they started thinking about wanting to push someone down or <laughs> say something they shouldn't say. And of course, Sarah Beth always gets around it. She goes, well, I would think about killing someone. I'd kill them. And then I would think about how sorry I was and making them live again. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, well. We hear that all the time. But in a sense, I think people think that heaven is a static place. But I think it's actually a place of maturation, not stillness, not static. Garden of Eden was not static. It was a place of productivity and development. Brett, just one last thought uh, for me. <laughs> just you've been hinting at it, but uh, there's another whole dimension of what we are saved for, mm -hmm. uh, which we could go into. But that is relationship. 
-hmm. relationship with God and relationship with others. That's right. So yes, we are not. So when we are saved from sin, we are saved for not only the land, but also relationship with God and with one another. And you were talking about intimacy last week and these types of things. Um, Absolutely, we are saved for that. And um, I mean, this lecture wasn't meant to be kind of an environmentalist lecture. It wasn't meant to be that at all. It was just really saying salvation is more than just being taken from and not having an imagination what for. Um, but yeah, absolutely, like renewed relationships. What joy relationships um, have when there's no sin and suffering, no deceit, no. Uh, uh, no lying, no, no jealousy, no greed, uh, no striving against. Yeah. And so, yeah. So through Christ, we have these supernaturally restored relationships and, uh, they're not complete, but they're just substantially healed, but not completely healed. You know, I really struggle with my father, but in my ability to forgive him, I am free of my, my anger toward him. And, and so even in death, now I have this, I've had this good relationship with him, this restored relationship before he died. And so because of that, I still have that. And I know that when I see him in heaven, that I will be delighted me like, you know, you're, you're so much more than what I could ever imagine. And he'll say the same to me that, that uh, and so yeah, I think there will be an, uh, you know, we will be tempted to bow down, you know, to another creature. C.S. Lewis says, if we saw them in all their glory, um, I, I think that's true. And so yes, there is a restoration, and also I mentioned that there's a re restoration to ourselves, what we think of ourselves, and the peace and the, and the peace of conscience and joy that I, that we have within ourselves. Um, and yes, of course, with God that. That God is the integration. He's the one. So yeah. So thank you for emphasizing what I was only implying. But yeah. Mm -hmm. Stop seeing ourselves through the distorted image, right? It will That's right. No longer be that fallen, distorted image that we walk with, you know. And That's right. It'll all be. Yeah, we'll no longer walk through the the hall of funny mirrors. Yeah, and it'll be back to the. Um, well, what Adam was, he had no more because Adam wasn't even a new creation, right? right. We are a new creation. Yes. That's right, like this renewal. And yeah, yeah, it's interesting. You know, um, I think it's interesting that not only do we sin, which harms our ability to see others, for example, like if I'm resentful, then I won't be able to see the other person as they truly are. And so in my forgiving my father, I finally was able to see him as he truly was, not who I imagined him to be. And, and that's true for us. And what's interesting is that as we do things that we should not have done and don't do the things that we should have done, we, we in a sense uh, harm ourselves. Uh, we, we blind ourselves to others, but we also blind ourselves to ourselves. And I think that's very strange that we don't see ourselves. 
and it's impossible to see yourself. And so this whole attempt to try to self-identify and try to find your own identity through your own efforts, I think is impossible because we cannot see ourselves. And so we borrow from creation to try to create an identity. Um, that's what Adam and Eve do. And they were trying to find an identity by something that they could find in creation, but not something entirely new or not really even who we truly are. Um, what we borrow is something that we borrow an identity that is, but our true identity is that meanness of me, the Clarkness of Clark that no one else is. And only, and this is, I, I often say this is that the gospel is never first us knowing God. It always comes first by God knowing us. And salvation begins for us when we realize that God knew us already. And that we see that God knows us. It's not that I finally figured out who God is and then I work up to that and work out the algorithms. It's that I finally realize that God knows me. And in fact, God knows me better than me because of my sin. I cannot see myself. And so I trust the voice of God. You are my beloved. Uh, you are my own. I have called you out of darkness. And, and so I find great comfort that God assures me of his promises by seeing me as I truly am and not trusting my own emotions or my own self-evaluation. And so Paul says, I don't even judge myself. I think that's beautiful. So, yeah, we are even re renewed and restored to our own identity. Okay, so let's call it to a close. Thank you, Clark. Oh, in the meeting. Thank you. <laughs>